so quince is uh, probably one of the more bizarre fruits that you can come across. But they were planted pretty heavily at a lot of old homesteads because, like I said, they're a very old-fashioned fruit. And part of the reason that they're unpalatable fresh is that they have a really, really high pectin content. And so classically, people on homesteads would grow, you know, various varieties of peaches and apples and fresh vegetables and berries and stuff. And then a quince bush or two that they would pick the quinces, they throw it in the root cellar. The quince is going to be hard. It takes forever to ripen off the tree. And so when you get around to springtime, summertime, you've still got a bunch of quince sitting in that root cellar. You can chop one or two of them up, throw them in a a boiling pot of whatever else you happen to be canning, if you're doing plum preserves, whatever it is. And then that winds up becoming your natural pectin source. Welcome to Thrive in the Future podcast, positive solutions to help you thrive, designing your intentional life, homesteading, gardening, and rediscovering culture and tradition. Join our thriving community. It's where a community shares our positive solutions, our wins and our losses, Join at signup.thriveinthefuture.com. It's been a great year at grownuttrees.com. I've sold over 60 chestnut trees. I also have elderberry left and now elderberry cuttings and comfrey crowns. Check it out at grownuttrees.com. Okay, welcome back to Thrive in the Future. This week I have Brendan Bernard from Posterity Cider Works at posteritysiderworks.com. Welcome, Brendan. Hey, good to be here. Yeah, welcome. I like seeing all of your pictures that you have on Twitter of all the apples that you've been harvesting. And especially you find these heirloom trees that are like lost or forgotten or whatever. So that that's something I'm really excited about talking about. Give yeah, a little bit of background on yourself better. first. Uh, so I've been making cider. I think this is our eighth season of cider production, and it honestly started as a hobby, and it has grown from there. We opened the doors of our business last April, opened to the public for sales, and uh, yeah, it's been a fun, it's been a fun ride. That's <laughs> uh, great. So we do we do what's known as low intervention ciders, um, and so what that means is that we use no sulfites, uh, no clarifying agents, no artificial flavors or dyes. Um, we never back sweeten our ciders. We really try to showcase the fruit as much as we can. Great. So, do you use the the wild yeast then? That's on the on the apples. Often, but not always. And so, because we don't sulfite, we always have some amount of wild yeast in that fermentation. And then it really gets down to the specifics of microflora, because we harvest from so many different orchards, uh, and we're in uh, we're in the Sierra foothills, the Sierra Nevada foothills, so Eastern California, and we harvest all sorts of orchards, various microclimates, anywhere from about about a thousand feet up to about fifty five hundred feet, and wow. so. There's a lot of variation in terms of environmental conditions, which has you know some really fun impacts on the fruit, but it also has an impact on the microflora. And so some orchards we find the wild yeast that lives there is just bad. It doesn't produce a particularly enjoyable beverage, and it doesn't really do a service to the fruit that we're dealing with from that orchard, which may be amazing. So sometimes we'll use commercial yeasts alongside. Um, sometimes we'll do like a mixed ferment where we let the wild stuff go for a week or two, whatever, built up a population, then pitch a commercial to finish it. It really depends. Yeah, we use a mixture of 
Uh, the native yeasts, sometimes we get wild strains that start off in one orchard. We'll pitch them into a cider from another orchard because we like the effect that that particular wild strain has. Other times we will use 100% commercial. We'll just pitch that uh, commercial yeast day one. That's usually in the case that the the fruit is coming from an orchard where we don't like that yeast. It's not good. It produces off flavors. It can only ferment to like one or 2% ABV and then it dies, stuff like that. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. So if it's at a higher elevation, does that, does the elevation play into that more? Not that I have found. It's honestly, it's, it's evolution. So it's all the just minor happenstances of climate and varietal and what was passing through when, and even the, the yeast ratios will change throughout a season in the same orchard. So the yeast that's around in, say, September, when we're still seeing 90 plus degree days and the nights are in like maybe the 70s, that orchard, if we come back for another variety of fruit, three, four months later, November, December, we're now seeing like high 20s, low 30s at night. The days are maybe going to be in the 50s, 60s. Uh, Maybe it's gotten the snow the yeast that's living there is going to be doing different stuff. Um, the ratios of wild strains may have changed. And yeah, so it really, really depends. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. But I wouldn't have thought of that. That's that's really interesting. I've enjoyed seeing your adventures. And, and it looks like you have looked at Google and then say, oh, this looks like this was an orchard. How do you go about that? And then how do you reach out to the folks? All kinds land? of ways, honestly. So word of mouth is honestly huge for us. Uh, we've been up here making contact with people for, I think, almost six years now. And so there's definitely some word of mouth. People know about us. And then, you know, they have like a cousin who has, you know, somebody else's old property, great grandpa's, whatever it was. Um, and they're like, oh, you should talk to them, too. Other times, it's literally just they're driving out on a back road, they're hunting, whatever. And they come across a stand of trees. and They're like, hey, I found this. You got to go check it out. Other times it's us driving around on the back roads, usually springtime or wintertime when either there's a lot of fruit that's very visible or there's blooms on the trees, something that kind of sets them off um, and makes it easier to pick out from the road. We had a couple pieces in uh, various local papers that has been really, really helpful for us. It gets the word out there that we're looking for these older properties with these older varieties of trees that we can try to A, save the varieties uh, if they're unusual, and then B, put the fruit back into into use. Mm-hmm. A lot of these older properties, um, some of what we find is true homestead. You know, we're talking stuff that goes 1860s or older uh, when people are way out and they really were cultivating their own food. Other stuff is more commercial orchards from turn of the century, give or take 20 or 30 years, uh, maybe 1880s through about the 1940s, 50s. Uh, this was good apple growing country. And then the markets really changed. The varieties that were being grown up here lost their value. We saw the rise of a more mass market, monocrop styled, um, modern grocery fruit cultivation started to take off about 50s, 60s. And so a lot of these orchards were abandoned. Generally between about, I would say most of the stuff that we see that's abandoned was abandoned between about the 30s and the 70s. And so that was people who either they just got into doing other stuff or, you know, the market collapsed for them and they finally threw in the towel at some point and just started doing other stuff for their money. But most of the time the family still owns that property. It was 
in some cases, is an original Homestead Act property. We found a few of those that go back, you know, they've got like little plaques and stuff that say, you know, this claim proved up in 1892 or whatever. So they, you know, the property is owned. It's now often co-owned by a couple dozen various family members. One of the properties that we check in on from time to time, I think he told me that there were 112 owners uh, that were all various <laughs> cousins and second cousins and fourth cousins and great grandparents and everybody. And so we just, you know, we, we coordinate with whoever lives closest um, in that case. And um, yeah, it's, it's really amazing. We get, we get some really, really cool finds. Yeah. That sounds like a treasure hunt. That's pretty great. It honestly, it really is. It's super, super satisfying that like puzzle component, especially if it's a property that we, maybe don't have an introduction to, we know where it is. Maybe we can find the nearest neighbor um, and leave a card. Sometimes I leave notes on like the ranch gates because uh, a lot of these properties basically, they stopped being used for apple production um, and then they started being used for something else. Uh, and typically, you know, so we saw a little bit of a segue up here from apples to walnuts. Uh, so mm-hmm. walnuts were a good cash crop, maybe 20s through the 60s. A lot of stuff went in. So sometimes they just switched over, planted another tree crop, and then that market collapsed too. And then a lot of what we see is mostly just ranching. So mm-hmm. the trees are basically just creating some shade that holds grass for a little bit longer. They drop fruit, cattle are going to eat it. And so sometimes we can check in with feed stores or, again, just leave notes on the ranch gates and say... I'd love to know who you're renting this from. Uh, I want to talk to them about their apples. <laughs> and sometimes we hear promptly and other times, you know, it can be like 18 months before somebody actually gets out there and sees the note that we left. Yeah. That's- so you leave the note in plastic. So even if it's months later, they, yeah. That's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Just like Ziploc bags and rubber bands to the, to the gate and fingers crossed somebody sees it and hears about it. And sometimes, you know, people are actively living there. It's it's literally just, you know, you knock on the door, people come to it and you say, hey, so you've got about a dozen trees down at the bottom near the road. Any interest in having somebody pick those? And most of the time uh, with all of the properties that we work with, the answer is usually yes. Um, people often start to see these trees as more of a nuisance than a benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, they were originally planted, obviously, to be 100% benefit. They were either truly a food uh, source, like people homesteads growing their own food uh stuff that would go into root cellars for months and keep that family going and then other times with the commercial stuff like sometimes we get people who remember when it was a productive orchard you know they maybe they're in their 70s now they remember being 10 15 years old helping with maybe a harvest or two before things kind of shifted and we got into full abandonment and most of the time people want to see it become what it was, turn back into a productive resource for the family and for the community again. Great. So if someone sees that and they're open to that, how do you, what recommendations do you give them to bring their trees back to health or life or whatever? Yeah. So um, for one thing, a lot of what we see, there is obviously a winnowing, right? Like when you take a full orchard and you abandon it for 60, 80, a hundred years, some of those trees are probably going to die. Mm-hmm. It's just a fact of life. And so what we tend to find is whatever had the either genetic fortitude in the rootstock or the scion, uh, the name variety um, to survive in our climate, 
or the environmental conditions. Maybe there were springs on the property, things like that, where it wasn't necessarily 100% dry farmed. There was still some irrigation uh, being supplied, some underground water. Larger trees are tending to grow deeper down into the ground. So orchards where the rootstock wasn't the modern dwarfing variety, but was these older seedling rootstocks. Again, you know, people who are growing their own orchards for food in the 1870s, they weren't necessarily ordering rootstock off of Fedco or whoever (laughs) uh, your local uh, rootstock dealer. They were planting their own seedling trees and seedling trees are going to be a bigger genetic crapshoot. You're going to get all sorts of combinations. But in general, what I see is a lot of the the seedling varieties, they're the ones that had the, the ability to survive and find their own water because they were never transplanted. They had an actual tap root where a lot of the more modern uh, rootstocks are clonal. Um, so they only have surface roots. So they don't aren't throwing down that deep tap root that can, when you do withdraw care, that can find its own water. And so a lot of the time, my recommendation for people is basically just accessibility. And again, like I'm not going to tell somebody who's in their 70s or 80s, like, well, you got to go prune these 100 trees for <laughs> me. And um, like, I need you to get on the mowing and all of that. So, you know, sometimes we just take them as we find them and we'll put in some work to make them more accessible. Other times, we've got a couple of orchards where we're working with folks who have, say, retired to an old family property and they, you know, maybe early 60s, they've got the energy to put in and they remember it being uh, something beautiful and like a family retreat. And so those folks are going to be in there with like a bobcat ripping out the the blackberry canes. We got one orchard where now they're bringing in goats this next year to help mow. And so for them, it's a little bit more of an active enterprise. And so it really just depends on the orchard, on the people who are there, on what they have to give to it. And so A lot of the time, what I'll just generally tell people is like, we're out here, nobody has cared for these trees in 80 years, and they're still cropping. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Um, Like they have clearly found some form of homeostasis. They're in a good spot. We can do a little bit of work just every year, chip away at it, maybe uh, improve, say, airflow through the center of some of the trees. We can minimize some disease pressure. Um, We can clear out dead wood. Some of the, like, if we've got star thistle, maybe we're going to start mowing that. But in a lot of cases, those trees just really need that little bit of care and they're good to go. So do you actually do some of the care or do you just advise them on the care? We do. Yeah, we do. uh, For some of the orchards, obviously, you know, it's at this point, I think we're um, harvesting probably about a hundred and... 125 odd acres, 150 acres of trees scattered throughout our three county region. Um, So obviously I'm one man, I can't, uh, I can't manage all of that. Um, But yeah, there are a few where we take over most of the care requirements. Um, And those are typically more special trees where it's a variety that we have some really interesting questions about. It's more on the unusual side and we really want to see if we can get a good crop out of that tree. So do you 
trade the labor for the apples or do you pay them for the apples or are they just happy to have you take all, apples off their all hands kinds of arrangements yeah all uh-huh. kinds of arrangements um so sometimes we do just trades we give them store credit for the value of their fruits insider or you know we have sweatshirts merch whatever people are looking for other times yeah it is more just labor we've got a lady who says like you can't pay me for this i appreciate you taking them because i just have to wheelbarrow all this fruit down to the bottom of the ravine and dump it out for the deer you're saving me effort yeah knock yourself out (laughs) so it really runs the range sometimes we have people who it's strictly business like they want that check they don't they don't ever even want to taste the cider and uh it really runs the range Hmm. that's interesting so um do you have your own orchard we do. Yeah. So we've planted about two and a half acres of trees. Mm-hmm. And that is honestly, for me, that's really a, less of an orchard, more of a test lab. Um, and so that is about, I think, 105 odd varieties of apple, pear and quince. And we're dealing with a lot of different rootstocks, a lot of different named varieties. And that's really about figuring out what varieties do the best in our climate with what rootstock combinations and what care regimens. And so that orchard is less about like getting a yield to produce cider from and more about, obviously I want that fruit. Um, This is not uh, entirely without purpose, but in a lot of ways it's about figuring out, you know, what happens when you take like a French bittersweet apple variety you know, from the 1700s and you take it out of Normandy and you put it in the Sierra foothills where it's going to see 115 degree summer temperatures and winters that are probably colder than it's used to. Hmm. Uh, what happens to that fruit? That kind of gets into one of the big, big, big uh, points uh, about just the the terroir of apples. Everybody talks about terroir with wine grapes. You know, the growing region is going to affect the fruit. A Pinot Noir grown in the Napa Valley is going to taste different from that Pinot Noir grown in Oregon or in upstate New York or in France. Um, they're all going to have different characters. That's not really a contentious point. But when you start talking about that with apples, people sometimes look at you funny, um, <laughs> but it's really true. We have an unusual climate here and we can subject the trees to some really interesting variations from what they were classically grown in. And sometimes they absolutely, they have a hissy fit. They hate it here. And I cannot, <laughs> I cannot keep them alive on no matter what rootstock I try. And then we say, just throw up your hands and like, okay, this is, this is that test lab portion. This is. Uh, us figuring out that this variety can't handle it here. And then on the other side of things, we see a lot of varieties have more fortitude than we would really think about them having. Um, There are some French and English apples that so far, in my experience, they take very, very well to the Sierra foothills, which is not something that I think a lot of the people in those original regions would expect. Um, and then on top of that, what we see is radical changes in the fruit property. So we have really hot summers, we have a lot of UV exposure, and we have really dry summers. And all three of those things are going to drive massive sugar production and aromatic production. And so we can see things that start to just, you know, we go from, say, a, an English or a French bittersweet that might be four and a half percent alcohol typically in those regions we grow it and we see nine ten twelve percent and so that's obviously higher abv uh, but it's not just about the abv that's really just a shorthand for how concentrated that fruit's flavor has become 
Um, And we'll see these varieties start to really change in flavor. And so that really is that test lab portion of what, what we're trying to do is figure out, like, what can you do? What can you make some of these apples become? What variations are possible from these fruit varieties? Wow, that's great. I have 10 acres in Northeast Kansas, and I've planted a lot of apples and in, and those uh, English cider types don't seem to do very well, but most of probably because I get them from the Northeast US <laughs> and then, sure. and my, and my grafting skill is not that great. So, you know, but usually when I plant them, then they don't like it as much, but I've got some Roxbury russet and I've got a lot of Arkansas black. Those do really well. Nice. Yeah. I was actually literally this last week, I was pressing what about 1600 pounds of Arkansas black that we've harvested from four different local orchards. And yeah, the Arkansas black loves it here. And that one, that one doesn't shift too much in terms of its sugar profile. Uh, it's up maybe 15, 20% from what you'll see in other growing regions, but I haven't really tried enough from other regions to be able to say how the aromatics have changed, but that's really, you know, we can see small changes and then massive changes in other varieties. So there are some that are like right on the nose. They seem to be almost exactly the same from what people talk about them being in the Pacific Northwest or in the Northeast, New England. Uh, and then there's other stuff where it's just, we are, we are way, way, way outside the normal range. Um, and that's honestly just super fun from an experimental standpoint of just what, what can, what can cider become? Yeah. So the Arkansas black, how does that work out? Cause my Arkansas black, they look right. They're hard as a rock. I have to store them until late December, early January before, and then they'll, and then they're, you know, fairly edible. I could turn them into applesauce or whatever. So are, are they have a different characteristic there in your area? Yeah. Yeah. So what we see is they, I love them honestly as a fresh eating apple Mm -hmm. in this region. They take really well to that. They're dense, but still crunchy. We've had them from other spots. Uh, We used to live in Half Moon Bay, just South of San Francisco. We had some Arkansas black there as well. Um, And those ones were almost inedibly dense, um, Mm -hmm. fresh off the tree. And that's just not what we see out here. Um, And so some of that is just going to be growing conditions. Like maybe it likes the soil here more despite the heat and the lack of water. You know, Happen Bay is fairly temperate as, as an environment. It's not particularly challenging. We really didn't see... Hot days, not really prolonged droughts, but for whatever reason, those Arkansas blacks were much more dense and much smaller. Uh, and so, yeah, there's just some of those variations that really, like I said, there is there is a true terroir effect for apples. And I'm sure that cider made with your Arkansas blacks, if you could magically teleport them out here and I could <laughs> play with them right next to the ones that we're harvesting out here, we could see two different ciders. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Tell a little bit about your uh, cidery setup. So we we originally wanted to do all the production in our barn. We bought a property that was zoned for commercial agriculture. We put the orchard in. Small production volume wineries can be classified as ag-based businesses. And then our county basically said, absolutely not. You can't have a cidery there under no conditions. That would have to be like a factory zoning. And then it was just like this whole snowballing process. So what we wound up having to do is um, 
we found a nano winery that had been for sale for a couple of years, um, about 30 minutes north of where we live, and we bought that instead. Um, and so we have, now we have a tasting room, which is nice, and we also have a production floor. Um, so we have a variety of fermenters. I use oak barrels. I use steel. We use some plastic containers for stuff that's going to have lower residence time. And it really just depends on the cider, what it winds up in. Um, we've got a couple of different pressing setups. Again, depending on how much fruit we're dealing with, that's going to affect which of the sized presses I use. Um, and uh, yeah. Well, that's great. So let's talk a little bit about your types of cider. I have the uh, Happy Little Accidents that I bought and nice. I'm saving it for uh, for Christmas celebrations. So there you yeah, go. that's a fun one. Yeah, that one was finished in a bourbon barrel. Um, so that one, not technically bourbon, uh, two-year-old corn whiskey. <laughs> um, and so that's going to have some significant difference. We have a variety of barrels, um, varying ages. Uh, there's a distiller near us. And so that's very convenient. We get uh, his empty barrels and that kind of gets back to, because we don't use any sulfites in our cider production, sulfite is used as a chemical pasteurizer um, and as an oxygen scrubber. And by foregoing sulfites, we have a higher risk of contamination. And so wine barrels are not something that we really like to use because wine, typically the uh, the winemakers are going to be managing their microbial loads inside the barrel with mm-hmm. sulfite additions throughout the aging process. And so wine barrels that we get are going to have some sulfites caked in, and they also may have some bacterial populations that we don't want to be introducing to a cider that's not going to get sulfited mm-hmm. at all we'd wind up seeing just a massive explosion. But we have a distiller. I get a barrel that's been freshly emptied of 65% alcohol, you know, gin or bourbon or corn whiskey, uh, things like that. And I can be pretty confident that that barrel is very, very clean. And that also gives us a pretty broad palette uh, in terms of like flavors to bring into the cider if we choose to. Some going from totally neutral, others are going to be, you know, if we get like a, we did a plum wine in a seven-year-old bourbon barrel. And that was a huge, huge bourbon influence. Uh, the corn whiskeys are going to be much more subtle and much more delicate. They're not going to you know, step in there with as pronounced a note. So the Happy Little Accents was second use of a two-year-old corn whiskey barrel. So you're going to get the bourbon kind of caramelized sugars note in the nose and a little bit of spicy sweet oak on the finish, but you're still going to get a lot of fruit mm-hmm. in the middle. That one's fun. It's a mixture of about about a dozen different varieties of apple, um, along with a little bit of quince. And so that one, the name Happy Little Accents, it honestly started because we were doing, we were pressing quince on the same day that I was doing a disgorgement on some riddled uh, cider. So riddling is the champagne process where you turn all the bottles upside down, get all the lees down into the neck of the bottle, and then you flip it over, pop the top off. The pressure that's inside that vessel is going to pop out that yeast plug, and then you quickly recap it again, and you wind up with a more clarified cider. So we're doing that, and um, the disgorgement bucket where all of the sediment and yeast mixed with cider was going got slid underneath the press that was pressing the quince, and we wound up mixing several gallons of quince in with several gallons of um, this finished cider yeast 
And that was not what the plan was for the quince. And so he said, you know, let's not throw this away. Let's just let it ride, let it ferment and see what happens. And it wound up in kind of a fun place. And then we started just blending in. So that one is about a dozen different ciders blended together along with the quince, um, a bunch of different yeast strains, and then finished for about three months in, uh, or maybe four, uh, in a, that uh, corn whiskey barrel. Um, and it wound up in a really fun wow. place. So yeah, you were talking about on Twitter this week about quince. I've not had quince. What's what's quince yeah. like? <laughs> so quince is uh, probably one of the more bizarre fruits that you can come across. It's hard and styrofoamy on the inside. Um, they look like kind of like a tennis ball crossed mm-hmm. with a softball. They're like fuzzy green to neon yellow often fairly good sized, uh, like fist sized or bigger. And nobody knows what to do with them usually because fresh, uh, they're almost unpalatable. They are not sweet. They're not crunchy. They're like chewy, mealy styrofoam. That's fairly astringent. It's not a particularly enjoyable experience. Uh, but they were planted pretty heavily at a lot of old homesteads because like I said, they're a very old fashioned fruit. And part of the reason that they're unpalatable fresh is that they have a really, really high pectin content. And so classically, people on homesteads would grow, you know, various varieties of peaches and apples and fresh vegetables and berries and stuff. And then a quince bush or two that they would pick the quinces, they throw it in the root cellar. The quince is going to be hard. It takes forever to ripen off the tree. And so when you get around to springtime, summertime, you've still got a bunch of quince sitting in that root cellar. You can chop one or two of them up, throw them in a a boiling pot of whatever else you happen to be canning. If you're doing plum preserves, whatever it is. And then that winds up becoming your natural pectin source. And so it helps your jams and jellies and various preserves set, which was very important in the days when, you know, you can't go down to the grocery store and just get that little, that little jar of ball pectin sugar mix or whatever, and just spoon it in. You had to actually get it from the fruit itself. Um, And so typically Crab apples and quinces were one of the biggest uh, natural sources of pectin. And so we find these quince bushes at all these old homestead properties. And it's not really a quince orchard, which is what we need in order to produce cider mm-hmm. from the quinces, but it is a bush here, a bush there, you know, 40 to 60 pounds here, 40 to 60 pounds there. And we just kind of piecemeal it out from all the various homesteads and orchards and stuff that we have access to. And we get enough to do a single varietal cider with it. Um, so we call that quince essential. Quince essential. <laughs> um, and it's just quince essential. We, uh, we basically sell out of that one really quickly every year because I just can't get my hands on enough quince. It's an amazing, totally unique flavor. And it's also really limited. <laughs> um, but we've, we've definitely gotten some amazing feedback. People love it. It's totally unique. So you also have... Uh, in the garden, which I think is interesting. So you actually mi- mix in some tomato and, and things like that into and peas into yeah. the cider? Uh, yeah, that one's a really, really fun one. Uh, so that one, we call it a botanical cider. Um, and it's honestly, it's very, very vegetable uh-huh. inspired. And so that one, we started with a Newtown Pippin apple cider. Uh, Newtown Pippin is a classic American apple. We find it all over the place in California. Uh, it's immensely popular on the East Coast as well. It's a good keeping apple. It's a good fresh eating apple. It's a great juice apple. Um, and it makes a good cider apple. Um, so we started with that. And then 
I've been wanting to play with green almonds for a really long time. Green almonds, we, you know, I'm in California. Um, California grows something like, you know, 60% of the entire world's almonds. We have a lot of almond orchards and almonds are a tree crop and all tree crops essentially need to be thinned at the beginning of the season right after the fruit sets so that you get a good harvest on the rest of the fruit. So usually, you know, it depends on the varieties, what whatever, you know, plums, almonds, apples, whatever you're growing. Most orchards are going to take between like 10 and 30% of the fruit off of that tree so that the other, you know, two thirds or whatever is going to get as many nutrients as possible, set a good kernel size, as enough sugar, enough water, and you're not going to wind up with a really big crop of undersized, dry, hmm. low flavor fruit. Green almonds are the almond thinnings. Uh, so roughly what, like May, uh, April, May-ish, I feel like, um, is when they come off. And in some parts of the world, they are a delicacy. They are treated either as a pickle in vinegar or they're eaten fresh, uh, dipped in either vinegar mm. or salt. I first had them when I was a kid uh, growing up in the Bay Area. Uh, some of my friends were Persian and um, they had almond and peach trees in the backyard. And, uh, you know, his mom was uh, handed me this dish of these green almonds. I'd never seen anything like it. And it's just a totally unique flavor. It's like crunchy and sour and um, just a little bit fatty. Like the the almond kernel inside is immature. And so it's like this clear, subtly fatty jelly um, with just a little bit of sweetness. And then the rind is super crunchy and sour. And it really is like a pickle from a tree. It's super different. And I've been wanting to riff on that for a while. Uh, so when I saw the almonds come in um the green almonds we got some of it and threw it into that cider uh that newtown pippin um and it did some fun stuff it headed in that direction of flavors that i thought it would bring out uh but it wasn't entirely balanced yet um and so then we were kind of thinking about what what kind of flavors would balance it out and we hit upon um tomato and that really goes back, honestly, on Twitter. I don't, I'm sure you've uh, come across him, uh, Dave, uh, aspiring peasant. And so great guy, former Navy SEAL, um, and has talked a lot about the grounding benefits of taking up gardening um, after sure. coming back home and just the centering impacts of those, you know, tactile experiences, turning soil, brushing up against plants, smelling tomato vines, and what a centering effect that mm -hmm. had for him. Um, and I think it has that effect for a lot of us. A lot of us, I think, who wind up in this kind of homestead, food production, um, back to the land, whatever you want to call the various forms that the movement takes. I think a lot of us derive a great deal of satisfaction from those experiences, those physicality um, and those sensory experiences that are part of that lifestyle. And so he was talking about that and that just made it popped into my head and I was like, that's, that's what we're going to do. We're going to balance it out with some tomato. Um, and then we added a little bit of fig leaves wow. as well um, for a second uh, kind of green note. Um, and that one is just super fun. Um, it's very different. It's unexpected. There's this pronounced like tart apple right up front. And then you get this smooth, subtle kind of creamy acidity. Um, and that's that green almond. And then the finish is just all herbaceous green notes. You do get the tomato, 
you do get the fig aromatics, like almost coriander and vanilla and super green. So yeah, that one was a trip. Um, that one, honestly, we're sold out of it. Um, it went super fast. It was so well received, which was just incredibly pleasing for me because it was in a lot of ways, a huge risk to play with flavors that unusual, um, in a cider. And it's honestly, uh, a couple weeks ago, it was at two different Michelin starred restaurants and they were both using it totally differently. Um, because it just, it's so unusual. You can push it in a couple different directions. So what's your favorite cider that you create? Oh man, uh, <laughs> you can't pick a favorite child. Um, it honestly, it it comes down to mood. The different ciders on different days, I'm going to pick a different one. I we have a Perry uh, right now that's uh, only available at the tasting room. The bottles are all still going through their their kind of method champenoise riddle. Um, we haven't disgorged them yet. It's not cold enough. And that one I love. I love the Perry. It's fun. In the garden is a kick when I'm in the mood for that. Um, we have uh, more of a sipper uh, that I love every year. Um, our Aurora. That one is basically a crab apple fine mm-hmm. cherry. Um, so we, we took this uh, wild crab apple uh, and we treated it like a Spanish style sherry in terms of how we produced it. And it's just different and fun. It's a total sipper. What else? Our elderberry rosé is super fun. Uh, That one is uh, wild foraged Sierra Foothills native elderberries uh, mixed with apples. Um, And it's these beautiful kind of tart pomegranate and cranberry flavors. Uh, There's a little bit of like really subtle like nutmeg and pepper to them. It's really, it's gorgeous to it's pink. It's like this bright, vivid ruby to pink color um, from the elderberries. Um, and that one works really well with some stuff. Um, and yeah, honestly, I would have to say it depends on the mood. Oh, that sounds great. So how, how can folks, um, look up your ciders and then also order some? Uh, so we are at posteritycyderworks.com, P-O-S-T-E-R-I-T-Y. And yeah, so we have a couple different ways. If you're in California, we have one shipping tab. If you are out of California, there's a different uh, shop front that we have to use. We use a a service called Vino Shipper um, that kind of handles the middleman import export requirements to get stuff across state lines for us. Great. Sounds good. Thank you, Brendan. Thanks for joining. Absolutely. It was a kick. Okay. Take care. So check out Posterity Cider Works at PosteritySiderWorks.com. I really like their selections. The next thing that I'm going to try is the 2022 Elderberry Rosé. So this is forage elderberries in with the cider. Sounds really great. That's at PosteritySiderWorks.com. And tell them that Thriving the Future sent you. Hey, if you like this episode, leave us a tip on Venmo or Cash App at Thriving the Future. Or join the Patreon, patreon.com slash thriving the future. You get early episodes and you get extras. Thank you. Check out Thriver News. It's thriving community news without the noise. It's longer form articles where Perpin and I share how to thrive and how to live that abundant life. That's at Thriver News, thriver.news. Check it out. Thank you for listening to Thrive in the Future podcast. If you like what you hear, please click that like or subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. 
Follow us on Twitter at Thrive in the Fute and also go to thriveinthefuture.com.